seeing my friendship circle start to become more diverse, seeing my um, business associate circle start to become more diverse. And I think for the first few years, I was like, that's, that's all I ever wanted. And it wasn't something that I could just, you know, flip a switch and all of a sudden it was like, it's taken a while to build those relationships from a really authentic place. So in this upcoming episode with Megan Hale, we discuss the concept of anti-racism. Now, I think the interesting context here is Megan is a white female, um, but sharing her experiences and knowledge of, of moving with the anti-racism movement, if that makes sense, moving with it, but being active in it for quite a while now and how it's affecting businesses. She's in fact one of the first people to reach out to me uh, after the George Floyd murder and was talking to me about um, how Prop First Professionals, how the Mike McCallops brand uh, is embracing DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. To me, this is one of the most fascinating episodes we discussed. And it's a white person talking with a white person about how black people are being affected. I think there's some interesting insights here. Listen in. You reached out to me through our Prop First Professionals organization, I don't know, maybe about well, actually, right after the George Floyd incident, right? Yeah. Saying, you know, what's your stance and um, or what's your opinion publicly? And we were just formulating it and really trying to digest and understand it. Um, but that call then you and I subsequently had then triggered really a deeper investigation. I'm going experiencing DEI training right now. Yeah. Uh, we are formulating uh, values and new guidelines for our own organization around it. What got you interested or what was the trigger for you? I'm sure it wasn't the George Floyd murder that got you interested. You have a history of investigating and learning and experiencing this. Tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, first of all, being in the online entrepreneurial space, I think that the online space in particular can be a little bit more intense than just watching the news. And so I think that when social injustices happen, there's a lot of noise and it's, it's hard to ignore when there's a lot of people raising their voices about issues. And so I really started to take notice with all of the systemic issues that exist in our country and institutions in like 2016, like during the 2016 election cycle, mm -hmm. um, because a lot of people started raising their voices about just some of the things that were coming out in the campaign trails. So that's when I really started waking up to white privilege and white supremacy and all of these terms that I had never known. And I've been staying engaged in that work ever since. So when the George Floyd murder happened, I mean, of course there was a huge outcry. And I think that so much has happened throughout the whole history of this country that I really do hope that we're at a tipping point where so many more people are starting to wake up, especially white people in particular, who've had the privilege of not necessarily investigating how race intersects with privilege and equity and all of those things. So I guess it started about four years ago for me, and then it's just been an ongoing process. This obviously is not work that can happen overnight, as I'm sure you're, you're learning. You know, so people listening in right now or, or, or watching, we also broadcast this on YouTube. Right? Okay, so there's two white people talking about it. It's hypocritical. And, and actually, that, that was my feeling in the beginning that um, I don't have a right as a white male to speak. As I've been going through DI training, I'm like, oh, I have more than a right. I have a responsibility. Yeah. Um, what's your perspective on that? You know, I'm so glad that you brought this up because when we got off of the phone call and we were talking about doing this podcast interview, 
I spent two hours after that call talking to black friends, indigenous friends, white friends who are doing anti-racism work of like, what are the implications of a white man and a white woman talking about anti-racism? Is that our lane? Is that the space that we're supposed right. to be taking up? And then there's also the other side of that of, you know, I talked to Erica Corday just yesterday before we had this call, just to ask her some other questions. She's a, been a diversity consultant in my business of saying, you know, as an imperfect ally, there is a responsibility to take on some of that labor and some of that education as well, sharing our stories. And so I think that it's important for white people to be having these conversations. And I also think it's important to not take that role as an expert, right? I really think it's it's smart and wise to lean on voices of color who are leading this movement and who are leading this work. Yeah, that's a great point, right? So so we are not experts, but, but we're sharing some experiential knowledge. One thing that was uh, caught my attention, well, many things caught my attention in DEI. The first thing was the definition of equity and how that's different than equality. What's yeah. your perception of that? I am going to guess that you might have learned that from Trudy LeBron. Who I did. Brilliant, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> I did learn from Trudy. Yes. Um, who's writing I a think... book. By the way, just as an aside, Trudy is writing a book on this subject right now and yeah. is with Hay House. It's in hyper expedite mode because it, there's so much demand for it right now. So totally. everyone, if you're listening now, go, go to Amazon. I don't know even the book title yet. And maybe it's not out there for pre-order even, but Trudy spelled T-R-U-D-I LeBron yes. is the book to check out. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's the first time that I actually heard the difference between equality and equity, right? It's not, in order to get to equality, equity has to come first. And so what that means is really using our, our platforms and um, the privilege that we have to really elevate marginalized voices first and foremost, and to, and to give more opportunity that way, because that's eventually going to equate to more equality across the board. That's something I've really been thinking about. Like, what does that look like in business? You know? Yeah, and so truly... Trudy, is that, have you seen that graphic like the baseball fans? Yes, with the fence and the boxes. How do you, how do you interpret that? Tell me about that picture and what you see. I mean, I've seen a lot of different images that really kind of give you more context to what all of this means in action. Um, you know, to me, it's like equality is like giving everybody the same access to everything. And that's good in theory but not everybody in this country and in this society has had equal access to everything. And so even if we were to equal the, the playing field, there's still people who are still f further behind because they haven't had as much access. And so that's why it's really important to provide mo even more access to help speed up or to create more equal footing for them. Um, that, I don't even know. Like, I really don't think that we're going to see the end of that in, in this lifetime, honestly. But I think that's why it's so important for us to be having these conversations now. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, this has to be systemic, systemic change. Totally. So it's funny. I was looking at that graphic and how I remember the image is there's three figures. Uh, to me, indistinguishable male or female, indistinguishable color. You see them from their back. And the one fan on the far left has, uh, is they looking over the fence waving a pennant flag, clearly engaged in the game. The second person uh, can barely see the, the game um, because, because the fence is rising and the hill that they're on is decreasing. So just trying to pull themselves up and not engage. And the third person is totally blocked. I think there was a crack in the fence they're trying to look through. Yeah. And equity is explained by saying that there's certain individuals, 
of those three that are in disadvantaged positions. So you see the person that was totally blocked by the fence now on uh, uh, kind of a stool with whatever that raised them up so they could see equally to the first person. Same with the middle person. Yeah. What was most fascinating is that after picture is the engagement of the fans. All of them have the pennants now flying and rallying. What, what I feel resonated with me is when equity is brought about that it brings about a collective rally, which strengthens the engagement. All the fans now are having more enjoyment, more engagement because everyone can participate because the disadvantage, if that's the right choice of words was now giving an equal opportunity by giving them a slight advantage or, or uh, something to supplement where they were disadvantaged, lower Hill fenced in their way. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also like the additional image of what if we get rid of the fence altogether? And I think that's like a really big question mm. of how do we really limit, how do we uh, eliminate the, those limitations altogether for everybody? So it's, it's such a big conversation. I think that's why, you know, DEI work in particular is so ongoing. It's layered. There's always going to be more to learn and more to explore. And also I think the important piece is we have to move from just learning about it to actually implementing change, you know? Have you been able to do things in your business specifically to change your business for DEI? Yeah. Yeah. And it's taken some time. I mean, I think in the beginning, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think now, uh, like just this past June, I released like an explicit commitment to anti-racism and what that looks like in my business in regards to um, how I'm prioritizing diversity and equity and inclusion. And then I'm going to be updating all of those commitments every single year. So it serves as kind of a hub for my community of like, this is where we stand. This, This is what we're doing. And then it's also open for critique and open for suggestion and for people to add additional resources to. So that's an ongoing plan that I've put inside my business, but that's just been this year, you know? So it's taken four years to get to that point of like, okay, it's time to pull all of this knowledge together. And like, this is the option steps. And so uh, is that, that's public like on your website or how is that? Oh yeah. It's, it's like in the footer of my email, it's on my website, it's in the group description of my Facebook group. Like I put it everywhere because I want people to know we're building an anti-racist community and this is what this means. So by you being part of my community, by hiring me, like these are my values and it's important that we align with those values, especially, you know, as a profit first business strategist, I'm here to help people make more money and to steward it in really responsible ways. And so I want to be helping businesses that have similar values. How long have you had that as a public decree or statement? Um, I published it June 1st, 2020. Okay. So we're recording this in August, mid August, 2020. So, you know, a few months back now, um, have you had feedback on that positive or negative or anything? Only positive really. Um, I think for a lot of people, it's been really clarifying to see like, Oh, like, and, and also like on the document, I talk about my journey with, I'm waking up to white privilege, especially because I have a lot of white community members who might be on this journey as well. So I share, I have a whole video there talking about my journey. Um, I have some, some normalizing language of like, Hey, if you're experiencing this, that's pretty typical when we're waking up to white privilege and here's how we can cope with that. Because I think that this work, when we first start to see whiteness, we start to see it everywhere. We see it in our churches. We see it in our leadership team. We see it in our organizations, our friendship groups, like literally everywhere. And I can feel very overwhelming of like, how do I change basically my whole life? Like I need more diversity in my space. This is important to me, but it's almost like we're holding this urgency to create change, but this work cannot be urgent if we do our due diligence with it. And so we're holding this dichotomy at the same time. 
So I think I wanted to normalize that process for people because oftentimes when we wake up to, you know, how white things are, um, there can be some shame that's present. There can be guilt. There can be remorse, like a lot of heavy emotional experiences. And so I think having the tools, the emotional tools to hold space for that vulnerability, to stay engaged with it instead of shutting down, like that's all incredibly needed. Like this is, it's, it's such an important piece to all of this. So it's easy to just put your head in the sand and walk the other way, you know? You right, can. right. Or totally, right. You can ignore it. You know, it's funny when I hear white privilege too, you said uh, shame, disappointment. I, I feel a little bit of a, a, a pinprick each time. Like, ooh, I, I don't even like that privilege. It sounds like I was giving something special and I want to deny that and yeah. say, no, I wasn't giving. So I, I fought for everything I got, which is not true. But that's what to maintain my identity as an entrepreneur, I want to be able to say, well, I've worked my ass off. I've made. You have. Stuff. You have, yeah. right? I have, but I started by looking over the fence. Right. I was right there. Yes. Like there's all these things in the background that were also supporting you that you didn't even, you weren't even aware of. Right. So yes, I think that's the thing, especially with a privilege conversation. It's not an either or no one is saying that you haven't worked hard. Right. Right. It's you've worked hard. You have an amazing work ethic and you also entered this, this field, this, this game so many steps ahead because of just your skin color. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's why I want to encourage people uh, as you explore, whoever's listening in decides to explore this. The journey for me was officially, first there was this resentment, like white privilege denial is actually the, probably the right words for me. I didn't get it and I didn't see it. Um, but now I'm like, oh yeah, you're, you're put ahead of the race. You're given an advantage but you don't even know because you're not looking behind you. You're just, you, you have your own starting point, which feels like the starting point for everyone, right. which is not. Um, I started reading the book actually at your direction, how to be an anti-racist. Oh, I'm so uh, glad. Isaac, what's his name? Uh, uh, Ibram. Ibram. Um, really interesting. And what, what I'm learning from this book is there's really three categories. There's racism, non, you know, racism, there's non-racism, and then there's anti-racism. And well, I was only aware of the two, either you're a racist or you're not a racist. Mm -hmm. And uh, what he argues is there's this third category, anti-racist, and how I heard it defined is it's someone that tries to break the system from allowing racism to continue systemically. Yeah. Additionally, one thing I thought was interesting, and you know, he's a, he, he's a black man writing this book. Uh, he's like, for, he goes, first I gotta say, I'm a racist too at times. And that we have this kind of flip floppy thing. Yeah. Um, there was a, just by reading that book, there was a form of acceptance and understanding that this isn't like, okay, I got this figured out. I'll have this resolved tomorrow. This is the rest of our life's journey. Totally. So at least the rest of my life's journey is in pursuing anti-racism. Yeah. Same. What was your interpretation of that book? I think the thing that I just, I mean, there's so many things that I just love about his perspective and I'm so glad like his voice is out there in the world is so needed. Yeah. The thing that I really appreciated is that we have an opportunity to choose to be racist, not racist or anti-racist in any given moment. This is not something that you just get to a static place with and you never have to worry about it again. And I think that if we are committed to anti-racism work, we are also committed to self-examination all the time of how we can be anti-racist in this situation, in this situation, or how well have we been anti-racist in our businesses lately? Like this is something that we always need to be checking in on. And I think 
framing it that way is so wise, so wise, because it's not a destination. Like we're never going to get to this place where like, I got it all figured out. I know all the things I'm officially anti-racist. It's a choice that we make moment to moment. And I wonder if, um, I, my perception of initially like digesting all this stuff and it's been, it's been drinking from a fire hose, right? So it's really been yeah. since the George Floyd murder that really started digging into this, uh, and paying active cognitive attention to it. At first it felt like there's a lot of this stuff that's peeling away and it's a collapse. Like, Oh my gosh. Now it feels like there's a, there's a turning point at times. And other times I feel like I'm collapsing again, but that there's a strength coming out of this. And I wonder if the end of this journey or a certain point of this journey, the realization is going to be by pursuing anti-racism, by pursuing equity, that it actually selfishly strengthens me and you that, that we actually become better people, stronger people as a result. Well, I think about, I mean, in regards to that, I think that there's a really big responsibility to to use your voice and to use your platform in a really responsible, equitable way. Yeah. And I think that I have found in my own journey with this, that the more I speak up, the more clear I become on my values. Um, the closer I feel like I'm standing in integrity of the kind of person I want to be in the future I want to create. And I think that that is part of the outcome of doing the work. But the thing that I also notice, which has been probably the best gift is really starting to notice a, a big shift and the clients who feel safe coming to me because mm. of the stance I've taken, seeing my friendship circles start to become more diverse, seeing my um, business associate circle start to become more diverse and I think for the first few years, it was like, that's, that's all I ever wanted. And it wasn't something that I could just, you know, flip a switch and all of a sudden it was like, it's taken a while to build those relationships from a really authentic place. Um, but to know that I have people in my network that I can reach out to and I can support their businesses by sending them referrals, you know, mm -hmm. um, I think that that it really just does make every, everything lift and rise the more that, that we step up and, and do this work. Yeah, it's interesting. So, uh, you know, one perception I have, if I pursue diversity that I am now excluding perhaps historical relationships, maybe I dealt with vendors in the past, uh, and, and they were white based vendors. And now I'm dealing with new vendors that are of color or, um, or diverse re religiously or something like that. My thought is, Ooh, well now I'm intentionally, um, diverting work from these other vendors. But the other thought that came to me is, well, hold on. Now I'm really seeing that the best vendor that's best suited to serve my business the best is the right vendor, regardless of the elements that I may have been naturally kind of beaconed toward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, so one of the things that I think about with this is for every single business who's, who's putting equity into practice and being really mindful of supporting um, people of color's businesses, for instance, there's probably, and I'm just pulling this out of my out of my head. I don't know <laughs> what the stats are, but I would imagine that like, let's say that there's two more businesses that aren't doing that. And so even if you are um, feeling like, well, now I'm kind of cutting off this other person from having this opportunity, there's also two more companies behind you that could be giving this person, this white person opportunity. Right. And so mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the ways that I think about it. The other way that I think about it too, and I don't know if this has come up for you. Um, I think in the early stages, it felt like when I was trying to intentionally create more diversity that I was looking at skin color first. 
And that was a very like unsettling feeling for me because it really brought up like, this feels racist. Like it does feel racist because I'm looking at skin tone first. But then I realized that I had subconsciously been looking at skin tone first all along. Mm -hmm. Right. I was unintentionally uh, moving in the white direction without necessarily being aware of it. And so it was really just creating this balance to this. And that was one of the discomforts that I really had to navigate. Um, early on for sure. That's so fascinating. So that's the exact experience I'm going through. Uh, Trudy LeBron is my coach. And uh, I brought this up on our last call last week. Um, I noticed I I traveled again for the first time in a long time, but I travel when there's no COVID crisis, at least, at least uh, once every two weeks, often more frequently airports all the time. And I noticed when I'm walking up to a counter, if it's an empty counter and there's three or four people there, I would look to sync eyes with a person and I was unconsciously focusing on the white person mm-hmm. and going toward them. And then since this experience, I said, I'm going to be conscious about this. And now when I make eye contact, the very first person I make eye contact with that looks up, that's the person I'm going toward. And if I'm making, if there's two people looking at the same time, I'm going to go to the person of color. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, <laughs> I'm like, that feels like total racism. And she's like, welcome to the peculiarity of awareness. Yeah. You know, as we go through this transition, our subconscious kind of default behaviors become very conscious. And she goes, and it is awkward and uncomfortable. Yeah. Yes. But the, what I learned is if it's rooted in authenticity, not that uh, I'm trying to play favorites or whatever, I'm trying to rewire myself for equity, that um, that will be received people appreciate it, or at least inwardly I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do for my learning. Um, Mm -hmm. and for inclusion. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of the things that I've started doing too, um, I'm launching a podcast soon called feel good money. And one of the things I've done differently this time around is really looking at the guests that I'm having on and actually including like a race and diversity column, which is something that I have never done. Um, And it's really interesting when you actually start being intentional with making sure that you have inclusion, you're making sure that you have diversity. It's so like, you can't miss it. You cannot miss it if you only have white guests, for example. And I really, I mean, I look back at, you know, my earlier podcast when this wasn't in practice and it's so obvious, just those unconscious biases that were at play. So I think that there are some accountability practices we can totally set up inside our businesses. Um, It's just about, it's being intentional about it and what that looks like for you. We logged into this group training with Trudy and I think there was 50 or 60 people on the initial kind of introductory thing. Yeah. Two men. Two men. Uh, everyone was white. It was all white people. Two men, all women. Why do you think women are drawn or su- more interested, if that's the right choice of words, in DEI than men? Or at least that little sample set, it was clear as all women. Yeah. And out of the women that were there, were most of them white? Oh, everyone was white. Everyone was um, white. I kind of expected that. Um, the, the instructors were of color, yeah, yeah. but the attendees were white, but I expected that because there were, there's this awareness in the white community community. What I didn't expect was all women except for a couple guys. Yeah, I think, and I can just speak from my experience. This kind of goes back to like being in the online space. Um, the online entrepreneurship space is, is its own, uh, microcosm, if you will. And there has been, uh, you know, starting in 2016, 2017, and and Trudy can speak to this because she was part of like really waking a lot of white women up of like, 
the wellness space is not just white. The business coaching space is not just white. How are you making space for other people of color to be here? And it was a very bold call to action for people who are ready to hear it. And, and I think this is the thing too, is when I started waking up to all this, I was like, how many opportunities have I had to see this? And I just didn't, you know, that was like a whole nother thing. But I think the reason that white women in particular have a very important role is that we, we find ourselves in this interesting position in this whole hierarchy that with a, a white supremacist patriarchal society in which we live, you know, women are still fighting for equal pay and all of that with, with men counterparts. Right. And so we know white women, some forms of oppression that come with that. A lot of the pressure of what it means to be a woman and why we don't necessarily have the same permissions or freedom to like even get older, for instance, like there's all these different um, pressures that we feel as a woman. And I think because we have that experience, we know what it feels like to be oppressed and not necessarily have the same uh, freedoms or luxuries. And so when we are awakened to how we're now also serving in the role of oppressor, if we're not intentional about it, it puts us in a very unique position because we tend to have access to white men, right? We can use our learning to say, hey, this is important to me. We can speak to our husbands, our brothers, our fathers, right? Mm -hmm. And we can also do this with our business practices. So I think that we're just in a unique situation and with that comes a, a deep responsibility. Yeah, almost, so, almost like a bridge. Yes. You know, I, I think I was talking to my wife about this and she was like the, the ultimate, um, I don't know if the word's oppression, but systemic negative experience, if that's probably not the right choice of words either, is fear you know, of ogling or um, just men um, in, in attack or, or harm. She was oh, like, that's sure. constant. Like you don't walk around a college campus as a female at 10 o'clock at night no uh, by yourself. No. Right. But for a white male, it's like, uh, okay. Yeah. I, I have another friend. He's a uh, Indian descent, Asian Indian. And, um, he, uh, his wife is white. They were driving, uh, somewhere in California and she saw this house like, that house is the exact house I want in the future. She stopped the car to get out and take a picture. She's like, you got to get pictures. She's like, I'm not leaving this car. Yeah. He's like, you taking pictures is okay. An Indian taking pictures of someone else's house. That's, that's a crime, right? He's like, you, you have to understand there's a systemic belief that I'm going to be scouting this house for, you know, a bomb or something. And you, you're doing it uh, just because you're interested in, in the house like that one day yeah. that there's this immediate belief placed upon us. And he's like, I he goes, I'm fearful for my safety. I am not leaving this car. Yeah. That's how systemic this is. And, and it applies to uh, not just safety elements. Of course, it applies to all elements of business that, that there's this instant perception I have of someone based upon how they look or their religion, um, the clothing they wear, those elements um, are, are ingrained. It can actually figure a trigger a fear mechanism. Like, Ooh, you know, listen, if, if I'm walking down the street, uh, and I'm out of an alley's coming, this guy with a, uh, a tire, a tire iron and tattoos over uh, missing, uh, teeth and, you know, a scar across his face. Like I'm placing judgment on it. It's more likely he is, uh, out to do harm, uh, or, or, or be in physical conflict than he is a college professor. Like, I think there's also these mechanisms that kick in, that do provide for our safety and are necessary, but there's this component where we have to override it, where that, that mechanism evaluating fear is just being totally 
um, illogical. Totally. And I'm really glad you bring that up because the book that I'm reading right now is called My Grandmother's Hands. And it's by um, Resma Menachem. He's a therapist. And he talks about how we hold like prejudice in our body from, and it's transgenerational. And so how we actually heal the somatic experience of racism. And it's, I, I really do believe like out of all of the things that I've read and all the things that I've learned, like this, this piece is incredibly critical because it speaks to exactly what you were talking about. It's like, there's that physical, physiological response of mm-hmm. fear, right? But it's coming from a place of bias. And so how do we start to reshape that even in our body? Like it's, it's very fascinating work, but important work. Um, and I really do think it's like the piece that's, that's missing because we can only like think our way through something so much. We can only um, implement things so much. So we still have to pay attention to how we are holding that in our body. So definitely give that book a read if that's something that's like you want to learn more about. It's so good. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts of the entrepreneurs listening and what, what can we do if we're curious about diversion, uh, diversion, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, how can we get started? Um, is there a way to dip your toe in the water? Um, well, I think dipping your toe in the water is like a sign of privilege, right? Because <laughs> you have that luxury. <laughs> yeah. You can just dip your toe and see how it feels. You don't like it. Yeah, you yeah. can just kind of check <laughs> out. Um, <laughs> um, I really encourage you to just learn from people of color who are doing this work. Um, there's so much to learn. And I think over time that can, in the beginning, it can feel really overwhelming. Like you mentioned earlier, like I feel like I'm drinking from oh, a fire hydrant and that's how it feels because you there is so many terms to learn, concepts to learn, the way you're centering yourself, what is fragility, like so many big concepts so that you really start to just look at the world through a completely different view. I think the way that I really encourage, like, first of all, go do what you feel is right for you because there is no right way to do this. And I think that's the thing. In the beginning, you're looking for like, okay, how do I get this right and not screw up? And you're looking for this like monolithic, voice from either the black community or some other marginalized community, like, Hey, if you do it like this, no one's going to like be upset. And that doesn't exist because everyone is different. Like we're all human beings. We have different perspectives, you know? So I think in the beginning, it was like seeing a train wreck that I couldn't look away from. And I knew that I was like getting emotionally overwhelmed, but I also knew that what I was feeling was important and that it needed to be felt. And over time, I've kind of just had to find my own pace with just staying engaged. Like this is a part of me doing life, me doing business. I'm always going to be reading books. Um, And I think in the beginning, it was like, I have to learn as much as possible, as quickly as possible so I can fix this. It was Mm -hmm. very self-centered. That, and maybe that's a normal human response. I think over time, this starts to be anchored from a place where it's not about you it's about what you're helping create and what your role or responsibility is. So it's, it's very much like contributive versus really self-focused. But I think it's that shift just happens over time. And the other thing that I would, would share too, is that one of the friends that I reached out to um, to consult with her, like before we did this interview is a white woman who's done a lot of anti-racism work. And I was like, you know, I don't know how I feel about this of us, of us taking up space like this. And I know that there's no right or wrong way. Like we're going to get feedback from both sides. Right. And she said, you know, Megan, I have to share, like I went on a podcast to talk about anti-racism as a white woman. And they had plenty of people of color talking about anti-racism work. And that white episode was downloaded more 
than any of the people of color episodes. And as messed up as that is, right, we have to also understand like the way that the world currently works and that if white people are more keen to listen to another white person, because that's just where they're starting, then these conversations need to be had. And you also need to use this opportunity to encourage people to listen to people of color. And so for everyone who's listening to this interview, like I'm sure Mike, you're probably going to have Trudy on or other like diversity experts to come and really talk about how do we make these shifts in our business, right? And really leaning on their expertise. Listen to those episodes. Those are the people that we need to be learning from. Yeah. We had a woman named uh, an entrepreneur, Kim Peterson, you know, and she, and she shared her insights on her personal experiences around it. You know, what I love is that uh, you said, uh, do what's right for you is, is, uh, I think we need to do what's right for us individually. And I want to challenge our listeners to start asking a, a question that I started to ask myself, not can my beliefs or are my beliefs currently potentially wrong, but how can my beliefs be wrong? When I started asking that question, it just started opening my eyes, not just around, uh, this subject, but all subjects, anything I believe to be true. Um, how can I be wrong? And it, it's, it's opened my eyes to alternative considerations, hopefully to be softer and less opinionated and a better listener. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's been challenging, because in the beginning, like the voices were really strong that I was seeing, like you are racist, you are racist. And I think as white people, we tend, like that seems to be like the worst thing that we could be called. You Mm -hmm. are racist. And I had a lot of resistance to even believing that I could be racist. Mm Mm-hmm. But then when I started to look at this concept of racist and not racist and versus anti-racist, it was a little bit easier for me to see, I have racist beliefs. I have racist influence. I have racist upbringing. I live in a racist society. And so instead of it, of me making myself like wrong or bad, recognizing that I can be a well-intentioned person and still be racist if I'm not intentionally anti-racist. I love that, Megan. That's, that's how we're going to end it. What a punctuation mark. Thank you for that. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks so much. Okay. So, um, this was a a tough topic. I thought, I thought it was, um, unique because we, we have two people who admittedly are ignorant to the experience of growing up being black. Yet we are in part, Megan, myself, all of us, all of us are responsible for the change, the systemic change in racism. I really enjoyed the interview because of that kind of peculiar setup. What what, what, would you all think? I really enjoyed this interview too. It was um, eye-opening because honestly, my son's a college student and he's very much um, interested in the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, he's been sort of educating me. Um, and I think a lot of our generation and older generations about the difference between um, racism, not being racist, and then anti-racism, which is a whole other thing, which a lot of right. us not really, weren't really clear on. And it's um, great that the conversations are happening and, and we're understanding that it's not about, um, no, it's not that this person doesn't like black people. It's about breaking down the, um, the fundamental systems that are 
innately racist and we're not even really aware of them. We're not really even seeing it. I love that her um, program is now like an information hub on her website and it's really everywhere that she shows up on the internet. I was checking her out yeah. and she has those resources and that information everywhere, which I think is phenomenal. It's impressive. I want to ask you both something before Kelsey get your insights. One takeaway I had was that white, white women are the bridge, if you will, with color people and white men that, you know, white men have had uh, a privilege. And I would say, um, I, I didn't appreciate or really understand it, but now in context, like, oh, I did have privilege I wasn't aware of. And um, white women were actually secondary to white men historically, um, therefore being kind of a bridge between two. Did you think, did you, do you all agree with that statement I just yeah. made? What's your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think there's a stratification system in general, right? And, and that's how it, it sort of falls, white men at the top uh, and then, white women, black women, black men at the bottom. Um, and so I, I think that, that there's a lot of truth in that. And I think in some ways the, the opposite can be true um, for women in that when you are stratified um, as less than, you want to hold on to whatever power you have. So if you have power above a, another group, you know, you might use whatever power you have to further that empowerment. Um, so, you know, there's been examples throughout time where, and, and I think maybe one example, one current example is the woman in New York who called the police about the, the um, man with the dog in Central Park, whatever it oh, was. Oh, right, right, right. Um, you know, she sort of used her, her white privilege and her, you know, her ability to kind of victimize herself in that situation as a woman um, to have power in that moment to create power for herself. So uh, yeah, I do think that the, the dynamics of, of power between gender and race uh, is interesting to think about and look at and analyze. Yeah. Amy, any other insights on that? The women being white women being a bridge. Mm. It struck me when she said it, and uh, or when you two discussed it, and uh, I hadn't really thought about it before. But yeah, I see it for sure. You know, I, I also thought it was interesting that uh, she said that racist is seen as a four-letter word, right? I'm not racist. Like you don't want to. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. But I think that the reality is we are all that. I I am um, exactly because of the systemic. Um, behavior or the, the, the process and, and by supporting the system that that gives some privilege and others that are suppressed that's racism based yeah. on the color of their skin there's different and, and so, i think that's a big learning curve for us as a society huge, I, yeah. right so huge yeah. learning curve it's a I big think for especially like people who, who identify as like you know nice and kind and, and yes leaders, like yes uh, i think you know, there's an identity crisis that happens when you place the word racist on you. Um, but the reality is that you have to, you have to embrace that in order to recognize that you're part of the problem. Um, and that it, it's so much bigger than the interpersonal. And our culture is created and, and the way that we have these interpersonal relationships is really 
fed by the policies that we have in place that normalize things. Yeah. Um, so I think you, you really do have to face it head on and accept mm-hmm. it and be willing to let go of your privilege and power in ways, you know, what does it look like if, yeah. if you're not the head of the hierarchy and the stratification system? Yeah. I, uh, where I've changed a label for myself is from, I would call myself ignorant about racism to in denial. And and just by changing that denial yes. means I have responsibility to learn. Mm-hmm. Ignorance means I just had no awareness. And, and that change has been significant for me. Yeah. Um, that, that I can affect change. I also like the analogy because, you know, one fear I had is, well, hold on. This is saying that I have to be compromised now for things to be fair for everyone, white male. Do I have to give up? Do I have to take a step down? We have to give advantage to people that are disadvantaged. The analogy is running a race. And I think how I was hearing it was you're saying, um, you know, from the start line to the finish line, I was put in the middle to start and everyone else is at the start line. And now you're saying I got to go all the way back. But no, what they're saying is I was at the start line they weren't even given the start line. They, they were back even further. We're just moving people that were in a disadvantaged position to the start line. So it's a fair yeah. start. I don't have to run a harder race. Right. I got to keep running as hard, but I got to give everyone the advantage of starting at the exact same starting same point. Start line. When I started seeing it that way, it's like, oh, I'm not stepping back. I'm pulling others forward. And we're all running together. Right. At least that's how I heard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think acknowledging, because one of the things that, you know, as I'm engaging in these conversations, one of the things that I think keeps coming up is that, um, you know, the civil rights movement, like gave, gave equal rights to black people. Like, you know, that was 60 years ago. Like they, they should, they should be. They should be at the starting line. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, this is 40 generations of oppression and continued. I mean, beyond all that, obviously there are still systems in place that still, oppress but you have to understand like intergenerationally like those things hold you back there is no carryover of wealth and and privilege that we've had that we've Mm. collected forever you know right right that's disadvantage is real and it's not because of them right one final thing i want to share before we wrap this up is uh Megan did reach out afterwards during the episode. She said, Oh, I know Kim Peterson. Well, she was actually confusing Kim with someone else. So she's wanted me to clarify that uh, when, when she referenced Kim Peterson, she was actually thinking of someone else. She doesn't know Mm. Kim personally, who was a prior guest on our show. All right. um, I think we may have a little game to play. Uh, We do. Do you want to guess the topic? Is it uh, racism? No, No, it's going to be something totally different. What is it going to be? Okay, and I'm not quite. I'm not. All right, the military. Oh, Megan is a is part of the military. Her husband is in the military. So okay, all right. Uh, first question: Which of the following is not a reason that the Navy introduced bell-bottom trousers in 1817? So, which of the following is not a reason for the bell-bottom trousers? Uh, number one: Due to the equipment for manufacturing at the time, the design was cheaper and more cost-effective. Two, the design allowed sailors to roll up the pants while swabbing the decks. Or three, if the legs were tied, they could be used as a life preserver when filled with air if washed overboard. Okay. I think that, okay. I think that one's an easy one, but I'll see. Okay. Are you really? ready for number two? <laughs> uh, <laughs> really? All right. The Coast Guard uh, seizes 9.6 um, M. Million. Million? 
$9.6 million, okay, I didn't see the dollar sign, of cocaine and marijuana each hour, week, HR. month, or day? Oh. The, the Navy Coast- seizes $9.6 million each hour, month, or day? It, the Coast Guard seizes $9.6 million of cocaine and marijuana each hour, week, month, or day. Okay. All right. Last question. The Air Force F-117 fighter jet is based off the aerodynamics from sparrows, falcons, or bumblebees. I'll tell you, if it's, if it's, if it's after bumblebees, the bumblebees at my house are so bumbling. They bump into <laughs> each other. They're like, where am I? This I is not a good. <laughs> drunk. Yeah, I had a drunk one at my house the other night. Yeah, like so literally walked into the guacamole and just kind of like hung out there like the heck there is a particular plant we have it and it's called spirum or something like that but it's a particular plant that gives them a sensation of being drunk oh like catnip for bumblebees only for bumblebees and they're so it's like catnip yeah they're so attracted to it and they're like wow interesting sleep on it's like kelsey after one of her nights just laying up tequila (laughs) everywhere vomit Uh, okay, guys, are you ready? Yeah. Yes. All right. Do you want me to go back over the answers? Which of the following is not a reason that the Navy introduced bell-bottom trousers in 1817? Uh, equipment for manufacturing at the time, the design was cheaper and more cost-effective. The design allowed sailors to roll the pants and swab the deck. Uh, the legs could be tied up and used as a life preserver when filled with air if washed overboard. Kelsey, what'd you say? I said number three. I said number okay. one, the cheaper. Mike is right. It's cheaper. Because I thought it was the reason you, not. I thought it was not. Yeah, the uh, government never does anything oh. cheaper. <laughs> the, the government gives a crap about cheaper. I read that wrong too, Kelsey. I was going to say the same as you. Okay. They did not do cheaper. Okay. What, they what did not do cheaper. Okay. All right. What about um, the Coast Guard seizes $9.6 uh, million of cocaine and marijuana each what? Hour, week, month, or day? I said month. So really? I would yeah. say hour. And here, let me tell you why. I don't think every hour they're seizing stuff, but they get massive seizes that if you break it in, I think the monthly, no way, maybe daily. I wanted to go to the extreme of hourly. So I said uh, per hour. And you say monthly, Kelsey? Yeah, but I feel like that's wrong. (laughs) It's day. Day. That's what I thought. Actually, I thought it was day. Correct answer. It equates to 170 pounds of marijuana and 306 pounds of cocaine. Wow. Wow. Housers. Okay. And lastly, the Air Force F-117 fighter jet is based off aerodynamics from sparrows, falcons, or bumblebees. So falcons. Sparrow. Bumblebees. Oh! No yes. wonder those planes are bumping. <laughs> uh, well done, Wait, Jeremy. How many did you get, Kels? Zero. I got zero. <laughs> wow, that's shocking, actually. <laughs> I'm, so glad. I'm so glad I didn't play this one with you guys. <laughs> That was a good one. All right, my friends, we hope you enjoyed this episode, and we hope it it, it has you questioning yourself, not in a negative way, but just reevaluating what you know. You know, wisdom, growth comes from challenging our own thoughts and beliefs, and that's at least what it did for me. We hope it did the same for you. Make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any future episode of Mike Up In Your Business, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate it. All right, see you guys later. Bye. Bye.